we've started the new year. I gave a talk, a couple of talks so far this year. Um, I thought we'd just do questions tonight. And um, it's helpful for you, each person, to think of at least one question that you would like to ask. I probably won't get to all of them, but um, sometimes when um, we do the questions, people raise their hands and I call on them, but sometimes I call on you before you raise your hand, so it's good to have a question ready. <laughs> and uh, it's helpful also to take a moment to think about what question would you like to be addressed? What and you could think about it a, a number of different ways. What would be the most um, pertinent question for your own personal practice? What would be the most question that might offer the most help or support for your own personal practice? Um, or you might think of what would be the most interesting question that you would like to hear addressed. Or you could think about what's the most difficult part of your practice that you would like some maybe help with, if possible. Or um, what's the cutting edge of your practice. Or you could just think of what's the most difficult question you could ask. I mean, you could kind of see where you're drawn. And so take a few moments and just reflect. We'll see if there's any people who raise their hands with questions or I should just start calling on people. Maybe if you could stand, please. What is the Buddhist perspective on homosexuality? Is there one? It's a really good question. The Buddhist perspective, the Buddha never spoke directly about homosexuality that I've seen anywhere in the Buddhist suttas. Um, what he did speak directly to was sexuality. And the, the underlying principle that is most pertinent around sexuality is the principle of non-harming. And um, so the Buddha mostly, and um, well, let's with the monastic community, um, they take a vow of celibacy, and so they don't enact their sexuality. But for the lay community, there isn't the same uh, prohibition around sexuality, and the the teachings are much more around. Um, um, they're actually similar to the teachings around money in this way that the, the, the monastic community also doesn't handle money um, but the lay community it's, was considered fine to handle money and actually the emphasis or the underlying principles are to use it wisely and the same principle is around sexuality to learn about money or sexuality and to engage with it because it's part of our life as householders and then to be wise in how we work with it and and then the most important principle that's true about money or sexuality is the principle of non-harming and that is how do we enact our sexuality without harming self or other and that's a practice to learn how to do that. Now, 
given all that, there are, and I'm not sure where, there are certain strictures against homosexuality, not per se, but um, um, there are certain rules or certain strictures against certain kinds of sexuality, but they never came from the Buddha. And they're in some of the Buddhist traditions and not others. And so, let's say, mouth to genital contact is prohibited. You know, so that could include any orientation, right? Um, and it's uh, tricky because I know in the Tibetan tradition there is those, those strictures are there. And the Dalai Lama's taken a lot of heat for that around homosexuality. And it's my understanding that it's really, he's in a bind. He can't just renounce those because it would take, create too much internal friction within the monastic community and the lamas and the, the politics of any of an organization. And yet, it's very clear that the Buddha never said anything about that. That gives you a little picture. You know, the Buddhist world is a big world. And, there's, and you can find uh, right, uh, left, and center in the Buddhist world. So the questions, we, we talked last week, the talk was on generosity, and I talked a bit about being generous to oneself as part of the, um, the virtue of generosity. And the question then is about uh, forgiveness. Um, there's a, a few different levels we can talk about that on. Um, From the perspective of right view, um, forgiveness is actually understanding the way things are. That we make mistakes. That it's true for all of us. We're, we're all unskillful in some way through our actions or our words or our thoughts, um, through commission or omission. Um, we're, we're all unskillful. The understanding of, um, of forgiveness from the perspective of right view is seeing the truth of that, is seeing that suffering. And, see, and to see suffering is to see it as an ontological reality, as an existential reality, that we all suffer, or we all make mistakes, or we're, all confu we're confused and act out of our confusion at times, or we're we're greedy and clinging and act out of that at times, or we're aversive and fearful or hateful, uh, uh, and we act out of that at times. To hold ourselves to any one fixed idea is not seeing clearly the way things are. Everything is in flux. We are in flux. To hold ourselves to the past in that way it's just, it's not even a question of you did something good or bad or right or wrong in Buddhism. It's just, it's not the way things are. You are not that person who did whatever was done. And the, and the most um, striking example of this is a story I mention often because it's so pertinent here, is the story of Angulimala. Do you know this story? So Angulimala is, um, this is a mala, right? Anguli means fingers. So Angulimala had a, had a mala of fingers because he'd killed 99 people and he collected their fingers. And, you know, Buddhism's the only religion I know that has a serial killer as a hero, right? <laughs> it kind of makes it interesting that way. I mean, it's not your usual religious hero. And, 
and what's interesting about Angulimala is when he meets the Buddha and goes to kill the Buddha and can't do it, right? He, the Buddha says, stop. And, or Angulimala is trying to catch him and he can't catch the Buddha and he says, stop. And the Buddha turns around and says, I have stopped Angulimala, now you stop. And Angulimala gets the transmission, he gets the teaching from the Buddha, and then he, um, he takes robes, he becomes a disciple. And he's never berated for what he did. He's never condemned for what he did. He's never judged for what he did. But even because your value is not based on what you do in Buddhism. How's that? Your, your true nature is unassailable. The nature of what we are, the Buddha nature, it, it's not assailable. You can't sully it, actually. You still have karma for what you do. So it's not like you get a free pass because you're not going to be condemned for what you've done. But there's karma. Actions have consequences. Um, and so Angulimala later, even, even though he's actually a monk and then gets enlightened, he still has some, some difficulties based on the karma of his actions. But the Buddha never, ever condemns him in any way. So to, to, to blame ourselves in an ongoing way, even if we did something wrong, it, it's the difference between seeing, seeing clearly and seeing through what I would call the small sense of self, which will condemn us over and over and over and over and over again. Because it's, it's not based in wisdom. It's not based in clear seeing. From the perspective of um, awakening or beginning to see clearly, there is regret or remorse, we could say. There's, there's true remorse. You know, we've acted unskillfully, we're sorry we did that. But we don't condemn the actor. So, so you are forgiven. And then you have to live with that, which for some people is also very difficult. It's almost more comfortable to keep blaming themselves than to simply be objective like, oh yeah, this, this really, I'm sad about this. Much easier for some people just to keep feeling bad, which is different than feeling sad. Okay, And then one more thing to say about forgiveness, because it, it's also another form of letting go. When we forgive ourselves, we stop holding on to the past. We stop holding on to the idea the past should have been different. We actually begin to accept the way things are, and that allows us to live more fully in the present. And so there are also practices one can do. One can literally do the intention practice. May I forgive myself you know, for any harm that I've created through my words or my thoughts or my deeds. And one can just say that once a day for a while. Just, you know, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do the forgiving. It's more the heart learns or, or starts to orient towards letting go of not not grasping or not contracting around the past. In the back, stand please. Why is mind so inclined towards delusion and suffering? Why is mind so inclined towards delusion and suffering? Do you want the Buddha answer? Sure. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I'm, I'm being quite honest. The Buddha actually wouldn't answer a question like that. Because there's no... He, he would say, um, ignorance is beginninglessness. There's, there's no beginning to ignorance. There's no beginning. And for him, for the Buddha, remember the Buddha was very, very practical in his teachings. He didn't speculate a lot. He wasn't into cosmology a lot. He didn't, if people would ask him about the nature of the universe, he wouldn't answer a question like that. Even if he knew, which he'd said at times, he said, I may know the answer, but it's not helpful. 
What's helpful is to pay attention to suffering, to study suffering in your actual experience. That's what's helpful. To pay attention to the causes and begin to let go of the causes of suffering. To pay attention to what happens when you let go of the causes of suffering and realize freedom from suffering. And as you realize freedom, to begin to see the ways in which we can orient our life that support that letting go. And so he would emphasize the four truths, which I just summed up, um, over and over and over again. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't speculate about why, why is there suffering. Just, he just wouldn't go there. So I'm not going to try to answer your question, because if he couldn't or didn't, I think I'm better off not trying to also. <laughs> Alistair. That's an interesting question. So why are you calling them to mind? Well, that was the instruction. I think I read it in the Jack Conflict book. Right. So this is, uh, did everybody hear what Alistair said, or should I repeat it? I can't hear. Repeat. Repeat. Okay. So the repeat, I'll try to summarize, that he's been doing a practice of forgiveness, and that he brings to mind ways in which he's been hurt, or ways in which he's hurt others, ask for forgiveness both ways, etc. Um, and it's a practice you can take on. But no practice is set in stone. And practices are vital for a while and then change. And it may not be so pertinent for you right now. That's really the question. Is it, is it what's needed? Is it what, what is being called for? For practice to be alive, we actually need to be alive to practice. That we need to pay attention and be flexible and fluid in response to what's needed. So I might do a, a, um, a forgiveness practice for a while and then find, actually, I don't, I'm not feeling bad about anything. Somebody did something to me, I don't even care anymore. Or, you know, I did something, okay, I know I did it, you know, but, it, but it's not, I don't need to keep doing that practice. Maybe six months later I want to do some more forgiveness because I've done something else I need to forgive, or, you know, by then. But, but it's really your, to pay attention, if a practice starts getting dry, to ask, how, well, how come? What's happening here? And then to see, maybe it needs to change, shift, be altered, attuned. Um, um, practice is alive. And if it's not alive, let's pay attention to why it's not alive. Taking the what you were uh, talking about with the previous question about forgiveness, about us having no um, value um, based on our actions, and that it's intrinsic, and kind of ties in with no self, I take it, or mm-hmm. something like that. Okay, and taking an idea like that, and say in doing practice, you kind of confront a really pervasive sense of shame. Um, do you think it's possible, or there's the potential to? Um, to kind of have some kind of spiritual bypass because it's so difficult to, to kind of handle the emotions around that, to have to kind of no self it away or kind of like um, to kind of use the practice to avoid feeling that based on some kind of understanding of no self. So let me see if I can summarize for everybody that, um, let's see, so um, that you can hit a certain kind of shame. In, in your practice, and you can bypass it by practice in order to not have to deal with the feelings and the, all that's the whole muck of it, right? right? Is that basically what right. you're asking? Or do you think there's a potential for that to happen? Do I think there's a potential for bypassing? Yeah. Sure, there's always a potential for what's called spiritual bypass, and I don't think that's a good thing. I, I think I, I think it it can be a temporarily good thing, 
In other words, I think temporarily sometimes it can give us some distance from some something or give us some space for something. But ultimately, I think we, I think we learn to find our ground in the middle of, um, of, of our experience, including the experience of confusion or delusion. And shame, what is shame? Shame is some idea that there's something wrong with us. It's a, it's a confused idea. It's a deluded idea. And so part of learning to sit in the middle of it is to begin to illuminate that idea so it becomes clarified, transparent, and self-liberates instead of having to bypass it. Because if we're bypassing it, we always have to bypass it. And that's not freedom. Then we have to live over here all the time. We can't just live right here. I think I have it. Okay. I'll try to say it. Um, the question is really about practice and relationship. And that, because part of our practice, a big part of our practice, is focusing on what's happening right here. And not, um, and seeing that, in some sense, all of our reactions to the world, whatever they are, are happening right here. And so if that's true, then even if I'm in a difficult relationship, but I see I'm having a reaction, it's really about my reaction, then why would I even want to leave it if it's a difficult relationship? So that kind of sum it up that question. And it's a really, pardon? Just that you can always see that it's your reaction. It may not be, it's not an ultimate truth. Okay, so that's a really good question. There's a few ways we can talk about it. And, and one of my teachers always said, he said, it's never the other person. It's never the other person. That from the perspective of freedom, people are going to do whatever they do. Our reaction is what we have to work with. Now, you're pointing to a really tricky place here because then it sounds like it's all up to us and, and we're just going to be passive in the face of what anybody does. And that's not exactly the truth. And, and so I'm going to try and give some bigger context first and then speak more specifically. And the bigger context is something like this. And there's a model that I was taught, I just barely know it, but it's that there are different domains of reality. There's the I domain, the we domain, and the it domain. This is Ken Welber uses this model, I believe. And the, and the I domain is the intra-psychic, inter, you know, the spiritual domain, the, name of, the domain where we pay attention right here. One of the confusions that I've seen in my own practice and with meditators is that we start taking that as being the only domain of reality. And then we start acting in the we domain as if the other person's kind of not there in some sense. Or the it domain, which is like the domain of the world and of business and of, uh, of uh, you know, making a living and 
politics. Also, if people are just so living in the I domain, that, that whole part, they won't even engage in that part of the world. Maybe they'll at least have relationship because they're a little lonely or they want to have sex or something, you know, right? But, but then that'll be a whole, a whole part of the world that gets denigrated, like the world of money and commerce and politics, because the I domain is so important. And, even, and any, cutting off any of reality is cutting off the truth. We're not actually just an I or living in this little world. And we're not just a we and we're not just it. We're not just, it. it's all of it. And so the question is how to pay attention to our reactivity and see where t true action comes from. Right action's part of the Buddhist teaching, right down the line. And in relationships, sometimes that means saying, I'm angry or I'm hurt or I want something else, or, you know, I'm leaving. That's, and so the question then becomes to begin to learn to discriminate between our reactivity and something that's not just a reaction. It's something more true. Because, you know, if, if, um, if, it, if it's just us, Right? If it's just us, it's really not them at all, ever, and you know, then we can go or stay either way. It's just us doing our thing. They'll know it's not us, right? If that we're not their problem. So you, you don't have to stay, you don't have to go, you can choose. But who decides? Who decides? That's a good question. Probably the most accurate answer would be to say decision decides. Or we could, if I want to kind of bring it up into the realm of more conventional reality a little bit, <laughs> we could say, we could say that our heart decides, which is a, not a bad place to look. Or, you know, some combination of our heart and our mind and our intuition decides. But there are decisions being made. The Buddha made decisions all the time. He, did. he wasn't just hanging out in the I domain. He worked with kings and, and, and uh, generals and um, people in commerce and uh, courtesans and uh, very poor people. I mean, he, he dealt with all kinds of people, made all kinds of decisions, created a whole huge corporation that's called Buddhism. Um, you know, a whole, what, what's called the dispensation, a teaching that's lasted for thousands of years. He was very functional. Is this helpful at all? <laughs> a little bit. So, you're going to decide. How's that for a, a non-Buddhist answer? <laughs> Uh, one thing I like to say in general around spiritual practice is don't lose your common sense. Even the ideal of that there is no self doesn't mean there aren't decisions that get made all the time. Okay. Mindy's, Mindy's going to help with this. Yeah, please. Mindy's saying that the don't know place is an important place to trust. And I, I agree with that on one level, but not if it's a, a place of feeling um, constricted by spiritual ideal, ideas and ideals. That it's very important to ground your experience in what you know and where you're at and act from there and to hell with the spiritual ideals to some extent in order to see what's really true for you and then see how the spiritual ideals line up with your experience. And so holding the ideals a little more lightly rather than mechanically. Even the, uh, the idea that there's no self. It's true there's no self, but until one knows that very deeply, 
very deeply until that's really begins to permeate our understanding a bit it's just an idea and it's it's you know it's a it's an okay idea it's an interesting idea but it's not but we we can't the self can't contort itself to act as if there's no self it just doesn't work much better to go from where we're really at and trust that because that'll lead you to what you seek good luck Last year, a relationship ended, mm-hmm. and um, I've been having trouble accepting and letting go mm-hmm. and moving on. Mm-hmm. And in my practice, there's frustration and shame around that. I'm wondering if the skillful technique would be to work with the truth of the relationship ending or all that extra stuff that comes up, the frustration that I should be uh, have moved on by now. Right. So the questions about a relationship ended, it's been hard to let go, um, some f- and then some frustration around it, feeling like I've already done a zillion years of spiritual practice and how come I can't let go, a little of that. Um, I think it's really important to pay attention to judgment, self-judgment, self-criticism, um, first and foremost. And I would say that on every level of spiritual practice, to begin to see how we judge ourselves based on some standard or ideal that basically has nothing to do with reality. The reality is you haven't let go. might be much more helpful instead of judging yourself or thinking that you should let go to actually let yourself keep feeling the holding on because that's where you're at. And mindfulness, from a perspective of mindfulness, that's what works. You can't be mindful of what's not here. Like, I want to be not angry at this friend of mine, and now I'm going to be mindful of how unangry I feel. (laughs) You can't do it. What's the miracle of mindfulness is that if you actually stay with what's here, it will self-liberate sooner or later. It will let go. You don't, you don't have to do the letting go. In fact, we can't really do the letting go when we're really attached to something. We can't do it. What we can do is start to pay attention to our suffering. We can be compassionate to our, to our we can bring in compassion and be mindful of the, of the actual phenomena of holding on, of grasping without judging it. You know, the spiritual ideal in, in Buddhism and in mindfulness is to let go and to not cling. But we can't, that's not a mechanical, you can't do the ideal mechanically. All, all we actually have to do in our practice is pay attention. Um, but that's a profound paying attention. It's not just a superficial paying attention. It means really being able to pay attention not just with our eyes or our mind but with our heart and our body so that we sit in the fire of what we're paying attention to. And then we burn up or it burns up or something happens and then it's we're free, we're released. So yeah, I would, I would really include I would really start with being mindful of the judgment and seeing what happens if we can start to disengage from self-judgment. Joko Beck said, to live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. And we are a society with a, a, a pandemic uh, uh, um, curse of self-judgment, partly because we live in such a highly individuated culture. Um, and it seems to just bring this come comet um, self-judgment. Um, and one of the things that I've seen is that if you, one can actually begin to start to disengage or um, let go or defend or find some space from the self-judgment, practice starts to really have a life of its own. It's not based on our idea of what should happen then. The, the judgment always sets up a a standard that we're supposed to meet, whether it's in our relationship or in our work or in our how we act or or in our meditation practice. 
And meditation practice has nothing to do with some standard. It has to do with what's actually here now. And then learning how to work skillfully with that. It's like the what? Like a mental cabin in the woods instead of being in a noisy oh, I see. apartment or something like that. But I've heard you talk a little bit about not so much letting going pushing away the thoughts, but letting them be there. And I'm having trouble with that in between. More, uh, it's, you can let them be there. Be mindful of the process of thinking. Start to see if you can cultivate a non-contentious attitudes towards the process of thinking. It doesn't mean so much getting involved with the content of your thoughts, but it does mean seeing, being able to start to be mindful of thinking and cultivating the part of our mind that's not thinking when we're mindful of thinking. Okay, that, you want to hear a little more about that? Yeah, so start to become part, start to become aware of that quality of mind that's mindful of the thoughts. That's not thinking, but is actually aware of the thoughts. That there's a quality of mind that is not bound by what it's aware of. So, and especially this is really true when you start to see thoughts or be mindful of thinking we start to see, oh, it's just thinking. It's just happening on its own. It's actually not even me doing it most of the time. Actually, the time when we're actually thinking about something we want to think about, that's a good thing. We want to be able to do that. We want to be able to think about something we want to think about. But if you think about how much time is spent thinking about things we don't even want to be thinking about, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's rude. <laughs> I mean, if somebody would just be standing next to you saying all the things that you're usually thinking about, you would just think they were totally nuts, right? Because it's repetitive, too. It's not like they're even original, most of the thoughts. But what's interesting in mindfulness practice is we can start to see the processes of life from a different perspective. And the processes include the body, and the feelings, and the emotions, and the sounds, and the smells, and the tastes, and the touch, and the thoughts. And they're all in process. There's nothing fixed. There's not one fixed thing in the whole universe. And so all of a sudden, when we start to become mindful of thoughts, not just, oh, we have thoughts and then it's quiet, but actually we start to see the changing nature of things, the impermanent nature of things, and the unfixed nature, the transiency of things, and the transparency of what we generally take to be reality, what, we, what generally isn't even questioned. Then it gets interesting a little bit. If we're not our, I was talking with someone, an old friend who I practice with in another tradition, and he said, he was telling me he once spent three months at a monastery in Thailand, I didn't know this about him, we were talking about it, he was with Buddha Dasa for three months, and he said, but the most powerful part was he did 11 day Vipassana retreat, and he said he just, and it was where you note, did a lot of noting, Noting, noting the breath, noting your body sensations, noting the feelings and emotions and sounds, and noting the thoughts. Oh, thinking, think, you know, thought comes and you name it, thinking, thinking, thinking. He said that was the most liberating thing for him. He said it was so clear, you're not your thoughts. It's so clear, you're not your body. So, so clear, you're not your feelings. They're processes. 
what, what, now I want to be careful here, especially if you're new, because what, partly what it means is you're not, you're not concretized to those experiences. That's not all of who you are. It's part of what makes up our experiences, all of that, our body, our thoughts, our feelings, our moods. Um, when we start to see that we're not our body, we're not our thoughts, we're not our... We still have to tend to all of that. This is, a, this is important. This is a really interesting um, sidebar when it comes to, quote, selflessness. It's just like having a body. Most of us, or some of us, might know that we're not our bodies. But even if you're not your body, you have to tend to the body. Somebody's got to do it, right? I mean, somebody used to do it for us. They don't want to do it anymore, right? <laughs> so we've got to do it. We also have to tend to our emotional life. We also have to tend to our mental life. And part of tending to our mental life, partly the maturing of our minds, means to be able to use our minds skillfully but also see the limitation of our conceptualization. There's a phrase in spiritual um, traditions that the mind is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. Does that begin? And, and again, like we're not giving instruction here, but if you, if you haven't had Vipassana instruction and you do a class or you go on a retreat, you'll get a lot of instruction about how to be mindful of thought and how to use thought skillfully in the service of awakening. Okay. Here, back here. Yeah, if you could stand please. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's start right now. I want you to feel your body. <laughs> I'm giving you the most practical teaching I know, literally. The most practical teaching I know is to begin to actually pay attention to what's happening in your body as we speak. And if you can get here in this very, in the, in, 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 and by mindfulness I don't mean just observing, I mean being in fully present in one's experience. And the more present you can be in your experience, the more you can be present in any interaction, the more you're here, right, right in your body, right there, then the more you're going to have access to your intelligence, your creativity, your heartfulness, and your intuition. So that I'm, I just wanted to start with that. Now you can ask some more about practical. <laughs> That was <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I hope that was helpful. But it really, it's truly, and this, I, 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 I feel like if I just said this every week, this would be a good teaching. That if we can learn how to be present in our bodies, we can learn how to function from a place of mindfulness. And it's the hardest thing to do. It's one of the hardest things that I've practiced is how to actually stay right here as we're talking, as we're listening, as things are happening, as emotions come in relationship. And it's, it's really a practice. It, and it's different. It's different than sitting on the cushion practice. It needs to be practiced interactively also. So it, 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 some of what happens on the cushion will translate as we begin to interact. But some of it needs to be done just like this, right now, that you keep feeling your body as you're listening, I keep feeling my body as I'm speaking. So um, emotions, you know, are like the weather. 
Sometimes they're like the rain yesterday. Sometimes they're like the rain that happened over New Year's, right? You know, everything gets flooded. Um, how to work with it is a question of skillful means. And skillful means in mindfulness means to have a palette of skillful means, ways to work with um, experiences, whether it's painful emotional experiences or even painful physical experiences. How do we work with it um, um, in a living way so that there's not actually just, excuse me, not actually just one way to work with it, but there are a number of different ways depending on what practice you've done, how much practice you've done, and what different um, resources you have to draw on in order to work with a strong emotion when it comes. You know, if you've done enough mindfulness of breathing practice, one of the skillful things is to actually consciously breathe in the middle of the emotion as a way to begin. The question you're asking, the principle you're asking about, is how to bring more uh, balance or equanimity when something's overwhelming. And, and there are a variety of ways to do that. The breathing can be one way, consciously to breathe. Keep breathing through it, really letting the breath bring some balance. Feeling your whole body can be a way to bring some balance when there's a lot of emotion and energy. Feeling your, your feet on the ground can be very helpful. Sometimes withdrawing a bit from the emotion and then coming back and alternating actually. One way you can do it is feel the motion for 20 or 30 seconds and then feel your whole body in the seated posture. Do posture practice for 20 or 30 seconds. Then go back to the motion for 20 or 30 seconds. Then go away from it for 20 years, just to help bring some balance. And when there's enough balance, let it rip. Let it, just let it happen. And at a certain point, when there's enough really inner balance or inner trust in the process, you can actually let yourself be overwhelmed by an emotion and you're just there in the middle of it. And it's like if, you're, if you've been swimming in the, uh, by the seashore and you get caught in a wave and you just go with it, it's like that. And you know what's happening. You may not be mindful in the most elegant way right then. Maybe you're shaking in your bed or maybe you're crying, but you're actually there in the middle of it also. And that's a possibility. What I noticed I would do with it was to go intellectual mm -hmm. and to start judging. Yeah. And that was a way to remove myself from the experience. Right. That's a very conventional way that we work with emotions in general. It's not a mindfulness way. It's good that you're noticing it. It's good that you're being mindful of the fact that you're judging it. Because the, the judgment is actually a way that, a, definitely a way we learn how to protect ourselves from something that feels intolerable or doesn't feel good. We'd rather feel the judgment than the emotion. It's more familiar at least. You know, at least we know ourselves that we're just a crummy meditator and we can't even be with this now. <laughs> It can, yeah, absolutely. And, but, but let's be really careful here because the mind will tend to concretize or reify things. So it'll sound like, oh, you'll sit for 20 minutes or an hour and you burn through and it's done. No, it might take three or four days of sitting or six months of practice. You know, you don't know. Um, there's a beautiful essay by Joko Beck in a book called Being Bodies. Being Bodies, the Paradox of, uh, oh, something, embodiment, mindfulness and embodiment. And it's a number of essays written by women, the whole book. She's the last essay in that book, and it's a beautiful essay about what you're asking about burning through. She, she calls it fierce practice, sitting in the fire of what's actually happening, and that if you're willing to sit in the fire, you'll burn through. Now, and, I, and this is absolutely true, but part of learning how to be sit in the fire is a skillful means. That just to throw yourself in the fire in a kind of willful and harsh way may not actually be the most skillful thing. What is skillful is to learn a variety of ways to find balance so you can sit in the fire. And one of the important things is compassion. 
And compassion means sometimes to go away from the fire, to fight another day in some sense, to come back when there's a little more resource. So, um, so that we don't get overwhelmed in a fundamental way. We may get overwhelmed by the, 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 the surf or the wave of the motion, that's okay, but we don't, we don't dissipate all our resources. That's not so skillful in Buddhism. Okay. Let's see, where we're at. one more. How can you tell if you're sitting in the fire and it's not skillful? Oh, how can you tell if you're sitting in this fire and it's not skillful? If you're asking the question, that might be a good an indicator. In other words, you know, you work with the fire a while, and then if it's not, and then if you feel like, well, is this skillful or not, that might be a good question to ask. And then the other really, really, really helpful thing is to have Dharma buddies and talk to somebody about it. Have friends in the Dharma who understand practice and that you can be honest with. You know, I'm sitting with this and I feel like it's just driving me crazy. That might not be so skillful at a certain point. And so, you know, I don't have a black and white answer for you, but definitely to talk to people at a certain point if you're wondering if something's like this is not being helpful. We need each other, even just to hear. Maybe somebody else won't have an answer, but just to talk about what it's like and Maybe they'll have an idea or think, well, why don't you try this? Or, or just even talking to them may illuminate something for you so that you're not just practicing alone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.